0: Grab your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible and you're with us today, we would love for you to grab one. Down the middle aisle of of seats are some Bibles underneath the the chair, and you're welcome to grab that and use it as we are going through the scriptures this morning. Um, The Gospel of John is going to be on page 576 in this Bible here underneath your seat. We're going to be in verses 6 through 18, and we're going to read these together. You are welcome to read them out of your Bible or read along with us on the screen. Gospel John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Read with me. I got to find the words first. (laughs) You ready? Here we go. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for uh, the sun shining. We are reminded that you are granting us new mercy today. We thank you even for this cold weather that comes and reminds us of your creativity um, the, the wind is blowing hard today, and it's a harsh wind, but we're thankful that Jesus is, is Lord over all these types of nature. And, um, and so, Lord, we come to, to worship Jesus today. We come to be reminded of uh, of what the Word says about him, that that he is God, that he was God from the very beginning. And as we continue to look at um, the, the introduction to this, this gospel of John, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive all that John experienced in regards to who Jesus was and what he came to do. Lord, we pray that under the hearing of your word that you would change us, that we would see and believe your gospel, and that, um, that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if we were to take a poll from us in this room, just us, in regards to what's the greatest need that the world has, the greatest needs that we have in the world, I'm convinced that we would get uh, just a span of different answers. Some of you would immediately uh, call out, because we're a military crowd, war. We got a lot of wars going on. Civil War, ethnic war, nation against nation, state against state, and I'm deploying to this stuff. So let's just stop the madness, right? Some of you would say that. Some of you um, would probably say in hunger and poverty. That That's one of the things that plagues the, the world all over. Some might say providing education, educational resources to people. Still others might suggest Uh, ridding our world of human abuses. And by this, I'm thinking of the various types of slavery that exists in our world now, the sex slave trade. We've got uh, child labor. There's just new kinds of slavery being developed all the time where people are being taken care of, the innocent. You know, a lot of people, might mention the environment. I was at the doctor's office finishing up a physical this week, and I was talking to an elderly man, very uh, articulate, very uh, inform- in- informed, he was retired, and his life had been spent uh, in the energy world, and so he was uh, very fluent in terms of um, the abuses that we are making now to our environment, pollution, and his solution was, hey, we need, uh, 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 we need to solve this politically, uh, we all have individual responsibilities in terms of protecting our environment, but more so, he said. I mean, he was an advocate for um, fusion as a means of creating energy, clean clean energy. It was it was way beyond what I could comprehend. I was trying to con- change the conversation, but he would not let me. <laughs> <laughs> and he was older, so I just I defer. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I agree. Um, Amongst this list of what the world needs most, um, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't throw in the famous Beatles song from the 60s that says, all we need is love, right? I mean, doesn't the world need love? All we need is love. You guys know that. Grammys just happen. Um, You know, these are all noble answers, but none of these come close to what the Bible says that we need. What do you think the Bible says that we need? What do you think? Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. And my, my daughter, we're, at, we're doing devotions at the, at the dinner table. That's when we do our devotions after dinner. And I ask some questions based on whatever passage we're talking. And Joey always answers, Jesus. She said, Jesus? I was, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. So, all right, you got it right. Jesus. Um, what the world needs is right here in the midst of the book that we're studying, the Gospel of John. Actually, John says more than just Jesus, it's belief in Jesus. Two weeks ago we opened this series up looking at the end of the book, towards the end of the book, and I quoted uh, John chapter 20 verse 31. John says, but, the, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now back to our list of what the world, I mean the world's greatest needs. None of us would argue that starvation is a problem. None of us would argue that lack of education keeps multitudes of people ignorant and in darkness. Um, War devastates people and nations. We are called to be stewards of our planet, and so the environment is important, and we all have our part to play. Of course, we need love. God commands it. He says we're to love one another. But none of these gets at the real problem, the root problem that we all have in the world that we live in, and that's a problem of sin. We are alienated from God because of our sin. In fact, the Bible paints this this story, this picture that God created his world, he created it perfectly. Everything was in harmony with each other, and then sin ensued. God gave a negative command to the people that he created and they disobeyed him, and from that disobedience, sin came into the world and it affected everything. And it affected everything such that there's no way to get out. We can't get ourselves out of the trouble that we've made for ourselves. God in the Bible paints himself as a holy, righteous, just God, and he demands perfection. And because we're sinful people and can't get out of the the mess of the lives that we've made for ourselves and the mess that we've made of our world, God's perfection requires condemnation of anybody that's not perfect. And so, I mean, what's the solution? It's it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. So God sends Jesus into the world to do what we couldn't do, live perfectly. And Jesus actually goes one step further. He does the unthinkable. He dies in our place for our sin. He assumes the condemnation of God in himself so that we would have life. That's what God offers us if we believe. You know, one of the the most famous verses in all the Bible is right here in the midst of John. We we quote it all the time. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish would have everlasting life, eternal life. But we we usually stop there. We don't go on to the. I mean, there's there's verses that come after that. And this is what they say. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes, emphasis on believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So this really is why I say this is the world's greatest need, belief in Jesus. Because without believing in Jesus, without having faith in Jesus, without professing faith in Jesus, then you stand on the condemnation of God. And at the end of your life, you're going to have to give account for all that you've done. And if and, and unless you can say Jesus has received The condemnation of God in Himself for me, and I stand under him as Lord and Savior, then you'll bear your own condemnation. This brings us to our passage today. Last week we began studying the prologue. The prologue is nothing but the introduction. And the verse, the first 18 verses of John is just an introduction to his gospel. And so John, in in this introduction, gives us a bunch of themes that um, that he's going to unpack in 21 verses, 21 chapters of of this book that he wrote about Jesus, trying to convince us that Jesus is God, that he's the son of God, that we should believe in him. And last week we re- uh, read verse one through five. I'll, I'll briefly cover those. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John is he's, he's telling us that in the beginning, before anything was that was, was this entity called the Word. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in your Bible... The, the word, word is capitalized. So he's talking about a proper noun. It's a proper noun. Actually, it's a proper name. He's saying some person, the word was really eternal. He was there in the beginning. Verse 3, he says, he was, he was not a part of creation. He made creation. And then in verse 4 and 5, he, he gives the word another title. He says, the word is also life and light. He's providing life. So a So spiritual life, physical life, biological life, eternal life to everything that exists. He'll go on to say everything that believes in him. John doesn't tell us who the word is in this first, first five verses. He actually tells us who the word is in one of the, the verses that we're going to read today. But John basically saying, he's talking about Jesus here. He said, Jesus is the word. Jesus is was with God in the very beginning. Jesus was the guy that God said let, let there be light and Jesus made light. He was the one that's behind creation. Jesus is God. That's what John is saying. We we looked at two three themes last week. The first is Jesus is the word and then we looked at Jesus being life and light. Today we're going to look at three more things as John Uh, basically unfolds his, you know, finishes out his introduction and gets us into the meat of what he wants to tell us about Jesus. And the first thing that that John tells us about um, has to do with light. In fact, all the things that he's going to have to tell us about today has to do with light. The light that Jesus gives and reveals to all of us who are in the world. The first of this is Jesus as a witness to light. Actually, John the Baptist as a witness to light. Verse six through eight says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Is that eight? No. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so we've said that John's purpose in writing this this gospel was to get us to believe. He aims to prove that Jesus is. Is the Savior, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God. And one of the ways that John is going to do this throughout his gospel, and especially right now, is he gives us witnesses. Chief among these is John the Baptist. And so he opens his gospel up talking about this guy that God has sent that's going to serve as a witness to Jesus. Now, we aren't told a whole bunch about John here. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us a little bit more more about John. We're gonna read a little bit more about John the Baptist next week in regards to what he does and what he comes to say, but we are told his mission right here, and and it's it's, it's, just twofold. He's sent from God, that's the first thing, and he's to bear witness to the light. They're calling Jesus, again, the light. John was sent to be a witness to the light. And I'm going to use a phrase that may not sound, I mean, it may not be intuitive. I'm going to explain it in a few minutes. This is God's kindness to us. John the Baptist coming as a witness is God's kindness to us as a people. It was God's kindness to the, the Jewish people of his day during the first century. John is the embodiment of all of redemptive history. All the things we see in the Old Testament culminated in John the Baptist. John the Baptist is called the last Old Testament prophet. He's called that because he was the one that there was a 400 year gap between the last Old Testament prophet Malachi speaking and talking about God and what God was going to do in the world. And then everything went silent. There was no word from God. There were no miracles done. It was as if God's people thought God had left them. And honestly, he kind of sort of had. And then all of a sudden, God brings this guy, John the Baptist, who's dressed kind of weirdly. He eats weird food. I mean, he's the epitome of the, the eccentricity of an Old Testament prophet. And he comes with this, I mean, with the fire and brimstone kind of a message of, of repent, get baptized. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's what that's who John is. And the the most important thing about John is more than any other prophet that comes, all the ones we see in the Old Testament, even the big ones, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I mean, John, John the Baptist gets it. He gets that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that all the Old Testament spoke about. Jesus is the Messiah. And he preached that the Messiah was coming. And so the way that John came, the things that he said, even how he dressed was, was on purpose. God was using him. God was using him to point to Jesus. And so John came as a witness. John the Baptist. There's too many Johns in this book, isn't there? John the Baptist came as a witness. And you all know what a witness is, right? I mean, you've, you've either been a part of a trial. I hope you haven't been, but maybe you have been. Um, and you saw... You saw lawyers, a plaintiff or a defense lawyer, um, supporting their client, and they bring people who will give testimony to prove what the client is, what what their argument is, to prove it true. Um, Maybe uh, you have uh, seen the news, and of course in our nightly news or the daily news, when they're trying to prove a point, um, when they're trying to you know, make something more credible, they'll use an eyewitness. This building burned down, this person was here to see it. Isn't that some funny stuff sometimes? And so we use eyewitnesses. Witnesses help establish any claim to fact. Witnesses establish truth. When the testimony of a number of credible witnesses uh, agree with each other, we tend to accept what they say. That's That's in the natural, that's how we receive witnesses. From a biblical perspective, it actually is a little different. In the Bible, a witness points to Jesus. That's what a witness does. And what I would like you to do in regards to thinking about who John the Baptist was and who he is, and then make sense of it in your own life, is think about all the people who have influenced you to be the person that you are right now. You got, you got, them, you got a picture of them in your mind? Um, two examples that come to my mind, guys who were witnesses for me that pointed me to Jesus, Stephen Michael and John Harmon. I was a 19-year-old a kid. I had just gone to West Point. Uh, I grew up kind of, sort of going to church, but I wasn't a Christian, and I went to West Point and immersed in the, you know, all the stuff that happens when you go, to, go away to college. Uh, they became my friends. They became my friends primarily because uh, I used to sing, and I sang in the Cadet Gospel Choir. I was a singing in the cadet gospel choir, wasn't a Christian, but you know, it was, I was having fun. And then we started the Bible study in the same book, the book of John, Gospel of John. And God was slowly unpacking in me that I wasn't a Christian. Why? Because the John was just speaking to me that I didn't believe in the Jesus that was in this Bible. Um, and And he sent me Stephen Michael, and John Harmon as witnesses that what the Bible said were true. John was a jock. Um, my son, Jonathan, is named after this Jonathan because this guy had such an impact in my life. So John was a jock, and I was, I was so impressed that a guy that was athletic could actually love Jesus the way he did, John's mom died unexpectedly when we were at West Point. I I was introduced to a Christian family. I saw how they lived. I saw them grieve, but also have joy in his mom passing because they knew that she was a Christian, and though her body may decay and go into the ground, that she was in, I mean, her her soul was in the presence of Jesus. He lived that out in front of me, and he was a witness for me, pointing me to Jesus. Stephen was a nerd. Steve, I mean, he's... My but he's here in D.C. right now, serving at the Pentagon. And I was impressed that a guy could be so smart. He was an engineering major, but still loved Jesus. When he prayed, it was, it was as if God came in the room with him, and I, I just felt different. And so these guys didn't just open the Bible and, and talk to me about the Bible. They did that, but they shared their life with me. John was a jock, and so he taught me how to lift. I can't remember anything Steve taught me. I'm trying to think. I, he was just my buddy. But you know what? This is, this is what drew me to these guys. I, I believed they were credible witnesses. I believed what the Bible said about Jesus because I saw it in their life. And I believed they were such credible witnesses that I wanted what they had. That's what a witness does a witness points us to Jesus. You know, some of you may know this, the word, uh, the, the word where we get the word witness is the Greek word uh, martyrion, and it means martyr. Martyr. What do you think of when you think of, of martyr? It's interesting how church history unfolds for us, how this word came, came to be so, so powerful, that someone would believe in something so much that they would talk about it, that they would confess it, that they would give testimony to it, even to the point of giving up their life. To support it that 's what a martyr is, and when I think of martyr I mean you can 't bypass fox 's book or fox 's annal of, of martyrs it 's a, a book that lists hundreds of men and women that um, that confessed Jesus and confessed him so much that it, it led to their death. And one of the most prominent people in this book is polycarp and in poly in, in church history Polycarp is it's notable because he was uh, he was a disciple of of John, the Apostle John. Polycarp is is one that lived in the first and second century. And of course, this is fifty years after Jesus died. He didn't know Jesus, but he knew the Apostle John, and so he's on Ephesus, the coast, and he's sitting at John's feet, learning all these things about what Jesus did, and he's learning about all the apostles and what they did through the mouth. Of John and Polycarp is important to church history because he's one of the few people that lived during that time whose writings survive. We have his writings now, and they give us credible witnesses that what they give us they give us credible witness that what the apostles said that became scripture are actually true. Now this is the 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 history of Polycarp and his martyrdom. Um, John the apostle John commissioned. Polycarp to be the Bishop of Smyrna, which was uh, a, a prominent um, first century city in the Roman, Roman province. And as the Bishop of Smyrna, uh, the bishops were responsible to you know, ensure that their city and all the citizens worship Caesar. In, in the first and second century, Caesar was God. Caesar was Lord, and you were supposed to give your allegiance to him. And so they're coming to Polycarp saying, hey, we want you to worship Caesar. They specifically asked him, light an incense uh, symbolizing your allegiance to Caesar. And Polycarp said, ain't no way I'm going to do that. He says, I'm not going to suffer me to blaspheme my Lord in such a way. He said, if, if you want me to do that, then you need to do whatever you're going to do to me. And they told him ahead of time, we're going to nail you, we're going to chain you to a stake, and we're going to set you on fire and kill you. And so they did, they planned to do this, and then at the moment when they were doing it, Polycarp, I don't, I don't, I don't have the the, the the words that he said, but he basically, in that moment, testified of the grandeur of Jesus, the one that he was willing to lay his life down for, and the the history shows history shows two things. Firstly, that he, he did die. Uh, some will say he was burned and chained, but the, the Christian historians say that after he gave a credible testimony of his allegiance to Jesus, he just dropped dead right there on the spot without being chained and without being burned. That's the history of, of Polycarp. Now we could go through the, the whole list of foxes. Um, annals of martyrs and hear similar stories. But the statement that all these people make is that their testimonies were not just wishful thinking. They weren't just trying to create a a do-good society. What they testified about was real because they knew Jesus. They believed that Jesus came to earth as a divine person. They believed that Jesus was both God and man, man without sin and, and fully God. And they believed so passionately that they did something about it. The statement of their witness and of their lives was this is true it's it's capital T true to the point I would give my life for it and so my question for us is I mean what about you what about you firstly I mean the natural application of this is to ask ourselves who have been the faithful witnesses to Jesus who have influenced you and made you the person that you are today Back to that phrase I used. They are God's kindness to you. That's God being kind to you, that he would bring someone who has been so impacted by Jesus that they would live it with their life and that you would see that and it would in turn bring you to faith. You are part of their legacy. That's God's kindness to you. That's God using them to impact you. And that's an incredible thing. But here's the second thing. And this is the action part. What kind of witness are you? I mean, who, who are you witnessing to? What's your testimony? What is what is your testimony about Jesus? You know, I don't want to call it a simple, but I mean, there's our lives are inundated with simplicity. Here's some of the things that plague us. We say, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do, uh, I'm trying to figure out how I should parent my kids, what major I should take in school, what job career I should go into, what I should cook for dinner. I mean, aren't those the things we think about on a daily basis, I'm not trying to belittle us. Here's, here's what John is, tra- is challenging us to consider through this text. He's saying, if you're to have a faithful Christian witness, one of prevailing thoughts one of the prevailing thoughts that we have to have is, will it point people to Jesus? And so what I'm saying is, in all that stuff that we do, I mean, the, the daily part of our life, it don't matter. It don't matter what career you choose. It doesn't matter what you make for dinner. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter which which of the models that you pick up as as the way you're going to parent your kid. This is what matters. Will it Serve as an effective witness for Jesus when you do it, and so let me qualify that. So, if you're a parent in here and you you really want to raise good kids, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can spank, you can not spank, you can make them eat your food, all their food. You can not make them eat all their food. I mean, you can do all kind. Of, I mean, there's all kind of models that that teach us how to parent. Um, here, this will be the travesty that you have morally good kids that that act good when you go to Walmart, but they're hellions at home. More more importantly, you have kids that act good when you go out in public, but they don't know Jesus. And so whatever you got to do such that your witness would rub off on your kids and that they eventually know Jesus when they grow up, regardless of what they do, do that, throw everything else away. And in your job, if you have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus, do that rather than not do it. Now, some of you in in the things that you do, I mean, because I know some of you, you may have a job that either lends for you to be dishonest or you're encouraged to be dishonest. And, And and John here would challenge us if your job is encouraging you or even leave makes room for you to be dishonest in how you deal with with people, then stop, pause. Consider how you could be an effective witness for him. I could go on. The second thing that John picks up here is the true light. Verse 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a, there's a lot here. We're not going to cover everything that's here in the detail it deserves, but I just want to whet your appetite for some things that we should be thinking about in regards to this passage. And so in the previous section of this introduction, we learned that John the Baptist was one of the primary witnesses to Jesus. And in this section of the prologue, John tells us Jesus came into the world with a purpose, and that purpose was to bring to bring a light to the world. Um, Jesus is the true light, John says, which is a, which is a way of saying I mean Jesus is genuine. He in our vernacular we would say he's a real deal. I mean he is he is it. He's the man. You know John chooses words like he did in uh, in verse one. Jesus is the word. He used a word that would fit multiple audiences, and so. Uh, When he's saying Jesus is the true light, he's speaking to his Jewish audience. He's saying everything that you expected of your Messiah is embodied in Jesus. He is true as true can be. He is the fulfillment of everything that you wanted your Messiah, your Christ to be. He is the man that God gave you every day to sustain you in the in the desert as you were passing through john will use words uh, further on in john he i mean he is he's the water that you drink and and you never become thirsty again he's the bread of life that you taste this bread and you won't want anything else it's able to nourish you to eternal life but he not only speaks to the jukes uh, the jukes the Jews, he's speaking to Greeks as well. And to the Greeks, who were all about knowledge and, and ration, rationale and, and reasoning, he's he's acknowledging, you know, there, there's a lot of lights in the world. There's things like ideas and products and endeavors that, that may do you some good and may satisfy you for some time, but there's nothing that's going to satisfy you like Jesus. Um, this passage gives us One of the greatest tragedies in the Bible and yet one of the greatest hopes. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that the greatest tragedy is that we did not know him. That Jesus was amongst us right here in our midst and we didn't know him. We didn't receive him. Verse 10 and 11 says he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John uses that word world like 86 times. I think it's like 86 times in this gospel alone. So world is is an important concept for John as he's writing about Jesus. When he says the word world, he's he's talking about people, you and I. He's also talking about um, the part of the world that's not submitted to Jesus, the the world system, the, the evil in the world, if you can if you can handle that. And here's the, the tragedy in verse 11. Jesus came specifically for the Jews. And in verse 11, he says, your own covenant people, the Jewish, the, the Jewish nation, um, people that Jesus came for um, didn't receive him. And, and here's the takeaway, just very quickly. Not receiving Jesus is the norm. That's, that's normal. We, we all do it. We all do it because of the sin in our lives. Scripture says all creation groans under the curse of sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. And so if we're going to ask why things are, why we get the uh, we, I mean, the gospel gives us the bad news. It gives us the bad news first. That's what the in order to understand how good the good news is. You have to understand how bad the bad news is. First, and the bad news says that we we have turned our back on the God that came for us, just like the Jews. He came for us; we rejected Him. and And that why the that's why the gospel is is so good. God came to save us when we didn't deserve to be saved. There's a story of a a, a Christian who was on a bus. He was. Uh, sitting beside a lady and he happened to be able to, I mean, he just an opportunity came about where he was able to talk about his life. And he got to the part where he said, I just realized that I was a sinner and I, I was in trouble. My life was a mess and I needed help. And I realized Jesus was there to help me. He was there to rescue me. And and then he, did, he started talking about Jesus dying on the cross in, for his sins. And the woman stopped him right in mid-sentence. He says, how dare you? You're offending me with your words that a man like him that you would think that I would need a man like him to come and and save me to help me and and you may hear that and say, "Well, I mean that was foolish of her to have an offense like that, but the honest the honest answer is all of us at some point are offended by what Jesus comes to do because we don't really want to believe that we are that bad, that we would be ones that God himself would be in our midst, and we would choose not to know him to not receive him, but that really is who we are and, and how, what we do. Our natural bent is to reject the light, to reject Jesus. There's an offense there, and we are the offenders, not Jesus. But then we give a con- uh, John gives us a contrast in verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and so thankfully John shows us the other side the contrast to this the thing the thing is in all of us to reject Jesus he says when we believe and receive Jesus he gives us the right to become children of God and so if not receiving Jesus is natural Coming to receive Jesus and becoming his child is supernatural. It's something that we can't do in and of ourselves. We actually need help. We need to be invited into the relationship to become children of God. And this really is what it means in the Christian world when we say grace. It's God helping us. It's him favoring us. It's him being kind to us when we don't deserve it. It's him giving us what we don't deserve. I mean, Jesus knew we were screwed up. He knew our world was screwed up. And because it was his world, too, he I mean, he came anyway. That's just the grace of God in action. Jesus saw that there was no shalom, the Jewish idea of of everything is right in the world, that there's peace. And so he came. That really is why he came. He came to fix the fix all the things that should have been right, but that weren't right about us. And about his world. Jesus came and, and he, he gave us love that we did not deserve. He shined his light, revealed himself as Savior. And you know, every, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And one of the reasons why we take communion, we call it sacrament. Sacrament means simply an outward sign of an inward divine grace. And so it's a sign of, of the good news of the gospel the good news of Jesus come to us when we, when we take the bread and we are reminded of Jesus dying his body being broken for us and we drink the juice saying that his blood has been spilt for us it's a picture of uh, of how bad our lives are and the measure that God had to go to, to save us that we're messed up and we need some help that's the gospel the third thing that Jesus, that John touches on here is revelation of the light. In other words, we see Jesus fully through John's writing here. Verse 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so this is talking about God revealing himself through Jesus. And God reveals himself in a multi- a myriad of ways to us. Firstly, it's general revelation. General revelation says that we can see Things about God, that there is an intelligent design to this world that we live on, that there had to have been a creator for the world that we live on, and even of ourselves because of what we see in our world. That's general revelation. And then there's this idea of special revelation. Special revelation is God revealing himself in a special way. And one of the special ways that God reveals himself, he tells us everything he wants us to know in regards to the, the, what we call our scriptures, the Bible. The other way that God does is when you believe in him, he he gifts you his presence. He gifts you the Holy Spirit that slowly unveils who who God is. And it it actually makes this thing, this Bible, come come to life. So general general revelation, special revelation. And so here, Jesus presents something very unique about himself and about the Godhead. Jesus discloses God through what he was, his nature, his nature. His character were revealing God to us. Ultimately, it describes Jesus as being God while also being man. And and theologically, we call this the incarnation, that man was made flesh. And so what did what did God do? What did Jesus do? Well, primarily what we see in this section of scripture is we see the character of God. God's character comes out by what he does. And verse 14 tells us explicitly. This is, the most impo- this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Verse 14, it says that Jesus chose to dwell with us. Verse, uh, verse 14 It's the first part of that. And, and he's saying some very particular words. He's saying, I want to be with you. He's saying, I want to live with you. And this would be akin to some of you whoever your favorite person is in the world, you going and spending time with with that person. I was talking to Julie Stevens before, and her family took a trip to to Texas last week, and they took this trip um, for one reason, to be with people who had become their church community uh, the seven to 10 years they had lived in Dallas, Texas. They were so special to them that They left their home here and spent money to get on a plane to go and hang out with some people that they have become intimately close with. Perhaps you have a friend from college. Here, right in DC, I've got several West Point classmates, a couple of them who happen to be my roommates, who I chose as a roommate. And I mean, part of the fun of being here is knowing that people that I actually love to be with are right here as well. Maybe you have some people like that in your life as well, that you want to be together with them. And this is what this is what these words mean, that Jesus, he chose to be with us. He chose to live amongst us. There's something incredible about this statement that God would want to dwell with us in that kind of relational intimacy with us. The word here means tabernacle, and it harkens back to the Old Testament, Exodus 33, um, not Exodus 33, but um, basically um, in Exodus when Israel's going through the the wilderness and they built a tent, okay? And the tent housed God's presence. And and so when Moses wanted to get guidance from God, he would go into the tent and God's presence would, I mean, it, it would be there. And so Moses is taking in all that God would give him to guide him in this tent, and so much so that Moses would be glowing when he came out. That was God dwelling amongst His people, and this really is a reflection of the Old Testament uh, Old Testament concept called covenant, that God would be their God, that they would be His people, and that He would come and dwell with them. John goes on to say in the latter latter half of verse fourteen, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. John is defining glory um, with two words. He's giving us uh, a multi-concept kind of a thought. He says um, God's glory is revealed through grace and truth. And again, this echoes what we see in the Old Testament, primarily through Moses in Exodus 33, which I said just a second ago, but I was ahead of myself. um, Moses was so bold enough to ask God to show him his glory. God Moses had such an intimate relationship of wanting to be with God and God reciprocated. God wanted to be with him that Moses wanted more of God. And he said, "Show me your glory." And then this is what God re, uh, responds. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to you, to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And so this is what John is reflecting on. He's reflecting on that God demonstrates, he, he gives us a, a measure of his glory in his grace and in truth. And you, I mean, you've heard several definitions of grace before. Here's another. Grace is a love God gives to us despite our unworthiness. Unworthiness simply means we're sinful people and we're not, we don't deserve God's goodness. As we read earlier in John, we don't know Him. We, we don't choose to receive Him. In fact, we reject Him. And God, he, he steadily comes in grace to us. And grace is a knowing love that redeems us. And of course, the greatest display of the grace of God is on the cross, where Jesus. Dies for people who, like you and I, are his enemies to display love to us. You know, the cross is, is, is an interesting thing. Today, the cross is an ornament that we adorn ourselves with, or we put it on a t shirt so it looks good. But in the Old Testament, well, not even the Old Testament, in the first century, the, the cross was a shameful way to die. In the Old Testament, it said, Um, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so think about it. God himself hangs on a tree for you and I. And God does this to show us how he, he points out the shame of our sin and he puts it on Jesus on the cross. And that comes as grace to us. And then John continues on saying that God glorifies his grace to glorifies um, himself to us in truth. And truth here is nothing other than the revealing of the face of God in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He's the revelation of God's truth. The truth that Jesus has left us to reveal all that God is. That's what it means by truth. This is now Our glory, and he concludes this passage uh, simply by talking about the uniqueness of Jesus. I'm going to go really quickly here. The uniqueness of Jesus—that's a a phrase that I'm taking from the times that John will say, uh, "Only Son." In uh, In verse 14, and also verse 18, John highlights that Jesus is the only Son of the Father, and the word "only" here is the is the word unique. And so, John is saying. Jesus is not only the true light, he's genuine, he's the real deal. He's not only the word, but he is, he's genuine. There's no one like him. And in verses 15 through 18, he points out four things in regards to Jesus and his uniqueness. Firstly, in verse 15 and 17, he compares Jesus to John the Baptist and to Moses. And he says, as great as John the Baptist is with the message that he brought, as great as Moses is, Moses was in the in the resources that he was able to provide, um, delivering uh, Israel from from slavery in Egypt. He the one that received the Ten Commandments and gave them to the Jewish people. Jesus is greater. Jesus is unique in his person. He's unique in his resources for salvation that he brought to mankind. In verse sixteen, he uses this phrase: "For from his fullness we have received." Grace upon grace. And so here, John is saying Jesus is unique in his provision. And what what you should think of in this in this sense is think of all the situations in your life, um, the different things that could happen for which you just need. I mean, I might call it luck. I just need some good fortune. But you need favor. You need God to step in and help you. And this is what he's saying. He says, God comes and gives us grace on top of grace for all of our endeavors. When I need hope, he brings hope. When I need faith, he brings faith. When I need comfort, he gives me peace. When I need joy, he gives it to me. He inspires me with unconditional and sacrificial love. And lastly, in verse 18, and I'll conclude here, um, John says Jesus is unique because only he can reveal God to us. Jesus is the complete revelation of who God is to us. In verse 18, he says this. Go to verse 18, please. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at, God, at the Father's side. He has made him known. I'm gonna read that again. No one has ever seen God. The only God, the one who was in the beginning, the one who was the word, the one who was with God, who's at the Father's side. Those words mean in the bosom of the Father. He's as with God as you can possibly be with God. He's always been there. He has made him known. Jesus is the complete revelation of God to us. To know what God is like and what God intends for his world, we only need to study Jesus Christ. This is why John called him the word. God speaks. He communicates most plainly and eloquently who he is to us through Jesus. This is what the world most greatly needs. We don't need to end hunger and poverty, although we should. We don't mostly need more educational resources, although those are important. We don't just need a better environment. We don't even need more love. The answer is like Zoe says, it's Jesus. We need to know God through Jesus. We need to know the uniqueness of Jesus as our Savior. And this is where John encourages us to start. He says, you need to believe. Let's pray. Father, make us people that believe that your word is true. Father, we thank you for those witnesses who have come into our life that show us either with their words or with how they live. Who you are. We thank you for your kindness to us, that you bring people along our way that can show us the light of life that Jesus is. We thank you for that kindness. In return, Lord God, would you you grant us faith to believe that you are all that the Bible says you are, the word, the life, the true light, the only Son of the Father, full of grace, And truth, that you are unique. There's no one like you. Would you help us grant us faith to believe that? Moreover, Lord God, I pray that those who here are here and that are already following Jesus, that you would help us to to be more effective witnesses, that the testimony of our lives would, would show forth, that the words that we say would give honor to Him, and that we would point those around us to Jesus. This is our prayer. And we pray it in his great name and for his sake. Amen and amen.